0: Okay. Good afternoon. I'm Purna Sen. I will be chairing uh, the session this afternoon with Senator Hugh Seagal. I'm delighted to uh, see you here, and I'm sure with the media coverage of the last few days of the Commonwealth, I'm, we're looking at a lively discussion. Um, I'm very, very happy to uh, welcome Senator Sigal here today. Uh, He's asked me not to read his long bio here, so I'm just going to pick out at random a few points if that's okay. Um, He joined the Canadian Senate in 2005 after four decades of public service that included being Chief of Staff to the Prime Minister of Canada, Associate Cabinet Secretary for the Government of Ontario's Cabinet Committees on Federal Provincial Affairs and Policies, um, Legislative Assistant to the Leader of the Opposition, and President of the Independent Institute for Research on Public Policy. Um, he's also a teacher and academic, so I know he's interested in, uh, in the work that you're doing and has just had a quick conversation with a student on her, her master's dissertation. Um, the most important thing for us today is that uh, Senator Segal, um was a member of the Eminent Persons Group, uh, which reviewed uh, the Commonwealth and its potential future, what direction it might take, but more recently has been appointed um, Special Envoy for, for Commonwealth Renewal, Um, by the Foreign Affairs Minister, John Baird, in Canada. Um, He has, I think, a fair amount to talk to us about. I don't want to take his time. And he's going to address issues of the Commonwealth reform, relevance, and future role. But I think that falls in the backdrop of today's and yesterday's coverage about two key issues uh, being debated in the Commonwealth at the moment. Um, One is the charter, which the Queen signed yesterday, and our media here, turn that into a charter for gay rights somehow, which I find rather bizarre. Um, And secondly, the debate on the next Heads of Governments meeting which is due this uh, November uh, to be held in Sri Lanka, and you may have seen media coverage of a range of critics of this, from David Miliband to Jeffrey Robinson to Malcolm Rifkind to Mary Robinson and uh, uh, Archbishop Tutu. saying that this is not a tenable move for the Commonwealth, saying that this violates the values which the Charter itself promotes. Um, And I think, and I'm quite sure, that Senator Segal will take up some of those issues in his talk. For those of you who are tweeting the hashtag is LSE Commonwealth, I will stop talking and allow Senator Segal to to address
1: us. Thank you, Senator. Thank you very much, and um, thank you for... uh, taking time from your busy academic schedules to uh, listen to what a visiting fireman has to say. I teach in the School of Policy Studies at the graduate level at Queen's University back home in Canada, and I have some sense of the burdens you carry at this particular time of the year in terms of projects and papers and uh, other assignments, so thank you for making time. I just want to thank Dr. Apurna Sen for making this opportunity possible. Her career and background, in my estimation, is an example of what can be accomplished through hard work, research, on the ground investigation, and uh, focused activism. Her work relating to human rights, violence against women, and racial equality is a standard for others to emulate. I personally appreciate all her hard work relatively relating specifically to the Commonwealth and its members over the years. When in uh, 2009, and I'll just do about 10 minutes of a frame Uh, in terms of where we are, then I'll be glad to open the floor to any of your comments or questions. When in 2009, at the Heads of Government meeting in Port of Spain, the Heads of Government mandated the creation of an eminent persons group, they did so in order to ensure, and I quote, that the Commonwealth would remain relevant to its times and people in the future, and would help build, and I quote again, a stronger and more resilient, progressive family of nations, Founded on enduring values and principles. This was not about sustaining a nostalgic view of the status quo. It was about dealing with the realities of the future in the world which we share. They recognized that the Commonwealth of Nations needed to be reformed, renewed, and rejuvenated, and if that did not succeed, it would slide into irrelevance if it wasn't already there. At the same time, The heads of government also mandated the Commonwealth Ministerial Action Group, which is a group of countries Mm -hmm. (laughs) rotating between 10 to 12 who deal with problems. It would have been the the Ministerial Action Group that dealt with apartheid and the sanctions and support of the frontline states against South Africa. It would have been that group that would have recommended that we had to exclude Nigeria after the coup. Suspend them. It would have been that group that suspended Fiji more recently. It would have been that group that suspended Pakistan twice, and the second time because of the sacking of their entire Supreme Court. That is the action body, if you wish, that engages between um, heads of government meetings every two years. Um, Up to the point where they were asked to consider how they might do their job more efficiently, they really just had a binary role. Has there been a coup in this country? If so, what do we do about it? They did not have a role to look at a broader remit of issues like human rights, judicial independence, rule of law, uh, gender equality, uh, democracy, uh, election activity. Now those have all been added formally as triggers upon which CMAG has to act. And um, that was done unanimously by foreign ministers at the last meeting of the heads in Perth. And the report, in fact, the task force that made that recommendation for those changes had on it, amongst others, the government of Sri Lanka. So what heads in Port of Spain recognized was that the simple binary coup or no coup question was no longer sufficient in the complex world which we shared and which the Commonwealth had become. When the 10 EPG, Eminent Person Group members, first met when we were asked to do this report on the future, um, the question we asked, if the Commonwealth of Nations did not exist, would someone think of inventing it? Of course, the answer which we came up with was no, they would not. Who would think to invent a completely voluntary organization, not bound together by treaty or contract, as is NATO or the UN or the EU or NAFTA, but a free association of 54 member states, bound by a common language, history, and the belief in the basic values of democracy, decency, and human rights. But that is who the Commonwealth of Nations is, and historically there is pride in membership, and while no country, least of which my own, is perfect. The common basis of working towards our values is precisely the glue that binds. Um, We remember what the Commonwealth did with respect to uh, South Africa, under the leadership of Sir Sridat Rampal, the then Secretary General. His eminent persons group, they visited Robbins Island, 1986, subsequent report was the catalyst that jump-started the move towards the end of apartheid. And when, in 1994, South Africa was readmitted to the Commonwealth under a majoritarian democracy, it was with great celebration. The recommendations for reform and renewal that were presented in Perth from the Eminent Persons Group work that we did talked about strengthening the Commonwealth of the people, the need for urgent reform. We had 106 recommendations we included a draft for consideration of a charter for the Commonwealth and a recommendation that it be worked on by officials of all the countries. It's what Canadians would call a non- uh, justiciable document. That's a term only Canadians understand. You have to be through decades of constitutional battle to understand the term justiciable. Um, But an aspirational document pulling together all the agreements that heads of government had reached over the years. Uh, at Harare, at Singapore, at London, at Latimer House, about the core principles of what constitutes a democratic, progressive, civilized society. The Charter is now in place, graciously signed by Her Majesty yesterday. The CMAG recommendations were accepted unanimously in Perth with the assistance of the members of the Ministerial Task Force, as have 85 of our 106 recommendations. Just so we're clear that this is not the old Commonwealth telling the new Commonwealth what's right and appropriate in some kind of condescending way, the countries involved in the work for the recommendations, the CMAC changes and the charter directly working on the texts included Australia, Bangladesh, Barbados, Belize, Canada, Ghana, Guyana, India, Jamaica, Kiribati. Malaysia, Maldives, Namibia, New Zealand, Nigeria, Pakistan, Rwanda, Seychelles, Solomon Islands, South Africa, Trinidad and Tobago, United Kingdom, and uh, Vanuatu. 24 Commonwealth countries had a direct hand in the task of reform. That equals 44% of the entire Commonwealth. Each one of these members were represented on the Eminent Persons Group, the Commonwealth Minister's Action Group Task Force or the Ministerial Task Force that approved the recommendations. Each one had a voice in the process of Commonwealth reform. So the question, as, uh, as your professor mentioned a moment ago, <laughs> is clear. What happens now? The reports are in. The charter has been presented to Her Majesty. The plan for Commonwealth moving forward is taking shape. To what end? Did we mean what we said? Were the recommendations accepted with absolutely no intention of ever implementing them? We in the Commonwealth are now faced with options, and the path chosen could either mean the slow death of a meaningful and proud association of countries, once willing to stand for the values to which we all aspire, but which has now become more consumed with individual bilateral relationships than the core values and principles to be defended by all, or the reinvigoration of a sovereign group of democracies relevant in the 21st century, multiracial, multicultural, geopolitically diverse, offering true prophylactic diplomacy through genuine advocacy and not shrinking away from the tough choices. The outcome of the first option is the erosion of principles, values and purpose, a sad ending to a once majestic organization. The outcome of the latter option would be that all he- would be what all ex- heads expected in 2009 the renewed relevance security and defining parameters of the commonwealth itself this is not to say that this option would not result in some unpleasantness few things of value take place in this world without unpleasantness change is not always painless the situation we currently face is unprecedented and neither the options provided nor the path chosen will be painless. Worthwhile expressions of courage and principle rarely are. The upcoming Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting and its location have incited debate, furor, and invectives on both sides of the issue. Canada's position is clear, stated by both our Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Prime Minister. Without visible and measured progress relating to human rights, democracy, judicial independence, and accountability, the level of Canada's participation in the Sri Lanka Chogam will remain under serious consideration. The Prime Minister has already indicated he does not, as we speak, see any reason to attend in the absence of the initiatives I referenced. Canada is a proud member of the Commonwealth. We're its second largest financial contributor and a firm proponent of the values and principles for which the Commonwealth stands. We fought hard for the bar that was set in Perth in 2011 to be raised, and we have no intention of lowering the bar or going along to get along in order to avoid unpleasantness. And as as we've seen already, sometimes taking a stand means coming under attack. We've been called a subversive supporter of terrorist interests, driven by a diaspora by one of our Commonwealth brothers and sisters. I do not apologize for my country stand, and I'm proud that even in the face of pressure from some to back down and the sincere desire from others to simply allow Chogum to go ahead as planned and worry about the repercussions later, asking us in effect to please not rock the boat, Canada believes that this particular boat needs some rocking. The expanded CMAG remit and the new triggers requiring CMAG action were not, quote, wouldn't it be nice, close quote, options. They were deemed necessary and urgent in order for CMAG to do its job. And let me quote from the um, introduction to that report. Doing its job, quote, both in defining the Commonwealth's core values and in achieving adherence to them in its promotion of the values of democracy, respect for human rights, and the rule of law. CMAG's strengthened role will enable the Commonwealth to further enhance its effectiveness as an organization of member states that not only believes in the importance of respecting and adhering to its core values, but also lives up to them. End of quote. These words come from the foreword to the CMAG report accepted unanimously in Perth and authored by our Secretary-General Kamalas Sharma. It's time to choose between an irrelevant, large commonwealth with a jellyfish core in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of some of our own member states, stands for nothing in particular, or a focused, values-driven, principled commonwealth where all members are striving to achieve its ideals. In the eyes of our more than 2.2 billion citizens, actually stands for something that matters to us all. The location of the next Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting is less important than the very principles of the Commonwealth itself. Logistics do not trump values in the real world. The prospective host this November, as things now stand, has a heightened duty to demonstrate a more fulsome embrace of Commonwealth values. I will be in Sri Lanka next week hoping to find evidence of this more fulsome embrace of commonwealth values as a fact-finder for my government. I shall do so with an open mind, an open heart, and great affection for the Sri Lankan people, all the Sri Lankan people, Sinhalese, Tamil, Muslim, and Christian. It may well be that in the face of consistent violations, of Commonwealth principles, the only sane but sad conclusion is that over the long haul, a strong Commonwealth may need to be a smaller Commonwealth. That is not my first wish, but it may be reality we need to address. I'm in your hands for questions, personal attacks, and comments. Thank you very much.
0: When you put your questions, we might repeat them, and that's why, just so that the mic picks them up uh, for those who are listening another time. Um, if it's okay with you, I'll take two or three at a time. By all right. So, any show of hands, comments, or questions?
1: My name is Fortune Lawrence. Uh, I was a student here in the year 2000. And, um, uh, I am originally from Nigeria and uh, at the moment I'm a director in my position of policy and development. I remember in those days when Nigeria was expelled from the Commonwealth, as you rightly mentioned, uh, the reaction of Nigeria was who cares? That meant that The commonwealth seems to be, or seem to be, a toothless bulldog. Or can they do Nobody cares. So I just want to know, has that perception changed these days, or is this still that toothless bulldog seen by some people from some supporters
0: of these countries? Alright, thank you. Good question. Anybody else?
1: Oh, wonderful. So, uh, I have had exposure. I don't, you're not wearing the normal blue uniform. No, i normal clothes. So. Yeah, I understand. <laughs>
0: I'll come back to you in a second. Round. My question is: you many times repeat the uh, principles and values of the Commonwealth. And I think that uh, maybe uh, this reflects the uh, stance, the position of the Commonwealth spoken in principles and values. What are real uh, efforts, businesses
1: that you do in Commonwealth to address some problems in the country? Okay. Would you mind just repeating? Sure. That? Um, I'll deal with the questions in in reversing order. uh, uh, So first question was, beyond the principles and values of the Commonwealth, what do we actually do to make a difference in people's lives? I think that's the question. By and large, what kind of business activities uh, or other activities are we engaged in? The truth of the matter is that if you look at um, uh, democratic development and uh, foreign aid, the Commonwealth has gone through different cycles. There was a cycle that they went through where they were seen to be a Tier 1 international development agency and they were chosen by DFID here in the UK and CEDA back in my country and AusAid in Australia to do a series of projects around agriculture, around water, around infrastructure, around training. We had a robust technical assistance process where technical assistance from one commonwealth country would be deployed to help in another country. I'll give you an interesting recent example in the floods of Pakistan the Commonwealth of Learning which is an independent commonwealth agency based in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia and it's about distance learning on technical issues gathered up uh, animal husbandry experts from New Zealand and in Canada from the University of Guelph and then through uh, um, uh, through uh, teleconference there's another word for teleconference these days what's that that progress software on, on Skype yeah through Skype a series of um, meetings were organized under the uh, direction of the Pakistani Ministry of Agriculture in the post-flood era to give specific technical advice on animal husbandry what to do with the herds of sheep and goats and others that had been affected by the floods it was very efficient um, the funds for that came from DFID, it came from SIDA, it came from the Pakistani Ministry of Agriculture. It was a very efficient way of transmitting uh, knowledge and technical skill sets uh, across the Commonwealth because of our common effort to be supportive. Um, there has been a robust, not as robust as it should be, Commonwealth Scholarships Program which allowed students from various commonwealth countries to study in other commonwealth countries and to build their own networks at the graduate level for the purpose of jobs and employment and building their own lives within the commonwealth family. There's been a fair amount of assistance, for example, around the issue of election observers. Um, A core of people from various commonwealth democracies have been involved in observing elections in other commonwealth democracies. There was a robust team in Kenya Uh, Just this week, we have had teams in Ghana and elsewhere, and they're not, just so I'm clear, they're not the old Commonwealth who knows everything, quotes, telling the new Commonwealth how to do stuff. In fact, in the last British elections, under the aegis of the Royal Commonwealth Society, young Commonwealth electoral observers from all through the Commonwealth, Asia and Africa, came to the UK to observe both the strengths and the weaknesses of the electoral system in this country. So those kinds of linkages between people, uh, Commonwealth Business Council, it's had its ups and downs, but it has tried to broaden investment networks, the process of generating patents in countries in a way that really does contribute to quality of life and opportunity. And this year's thematic, which is enterprise, um, opportunity through enterprise, is focused specifically on young people throughout the Commonwealth and connecting them up not with opportunities to find jobs, but with opportunities through investment to generate jobs, to be the people who are the proprietors of new and interesting businesses. Uh, Yesterday, in fact, in, um, uh, in Westminster Abbey, the chap who runs Virgin, Mr. Branson, addressed the church about what his particular company is doing to help young people find and build skill sets throughout the Commonwealth and inviting other companies to step up and do the same. So is it a focused foreign aid program run at the scale of DFID? The answer is no. Is it a series of projects on the margin, which can make a difference in people's lives? We think the answer is yes. And part of what our eminent persons group recommended is that much more investment be put into that, much more investment be put into trade. Imagine this. Um, The present trend, within 10 years, The European community's total take of global GDP, generation of global GDP, will be about 14%. The Commonwealth's generation of global GDP will be at 28%. So that opportunity is immense and substantial. I don't think we're exploiting it as well as we should, but we should. And part of what we called for, our Eminent Persons Commission report, was a Commonwealth Trade Promotion Office that actually worked with expanding trade. The, the trade levels now between our countries are large, but strike me, struck me, it struck me, the, when I looked at them, they're accidental. Canada is part of NAFTA. The United Kingdom is part of the EU. There are Asian trade agreements. Very hard to break out of those, because you have rules about those in terms of the tariff structure and the trade flows. But more could be done in my judgment. For example, there are no South-South airline flights. If you want to fly from Barbados to South Africa or from Barbados to any place in the southern hemisphere, you got to fly through Toronto or you got to fly through London. It's insane in terms of inefficiency and we should be doing more on that front. Second question, uh, I think, was about the Commonwealth and um, the notion of whether citizens within the Commonwealth can have access to labor markets and other activity. One of our recommendations was that we go back to something which existed before the UK turned its back on the Commonwealth and embraced the EU. We had a Commonwealth tariff. It was a, a very low tariff to encourage trade between Commonwealth countries, preferential tariff, which I remember growing up in Canada and a lot of the things that we saw in our supermarkets came from Great Britain because of that that preferential tariff. Of course, that's now been replaced by the European relationship. Um, the, I remember landing at Heathrow, and it said, UK and Commonwealth citizens here. Now it says, EU and UK citizens here, to hell with the rest of you. Right? So, um, and that is because of the EU agreements, which, you know, Schengen and all the rest of which various European countries are a part. Um, we, in fact, recommended that there be a task force put together to look at those issues of access and to see what can be done. One of the real problems is our friends from Africa are coming to Canada to look for investment and they have huge problems getting a visa. And these are business people and young people and others. What's that about? Why is that helpful? Why can't we move on that front? And there is now, in fact, going to be a task force at the Secretariat involving border people from various Commonwealth countries looking for an answer. In our country, as you may know, we now have a process by which if a Commonwealth student comes to study, he or she is a foreign student, they can now work and gain employment while they're a student and they do not have to leave Canada to apply for permanent resident status because what we have concluded is that having as many Commonwealth foreign students as possible from various parts of the Commonwealth is a huge economic strength. We will benefit by whatever networks they have, where they come from, therefore we should facilitate their entry and their integration into our workforce. And we know some other Commonwealth countries are thinking about going the same route. Uh, The first question was the uh, toothless bulldog question from our friend from Nigeria saying that when the Nigerians were suspended briefly during their coup, there was a lot of dialogue about the Commonwealth being a toothless bulldog. Um, Here's the hard truth. We are not a military organization. We uh, do not have a military treaty that unites us. Um, We basically operate through a measure of goodwill. But if you talk to many of our Pakistani friends who were in the diplomatic service when they were suspended twice uh, over various difficulties that uh, General President Musharraf had, um, they worked very, very hard to get back in. I recall, and this is a Queen's experience, I recall that constitutional experts were dispatched under the aegis of the Commonwealth Secretariat to Islamabad to work with our Pakistani brothers and sisters on how some element of federalism might be a way to help them manage some of the internal conflicts and areas of strife and division which they had. Um, uh, Prime Minister Kray Chan, not of my political party, worked very hard. Uh, Canada CETA, engaged fully in some of the democratic renewal that took place in Nigeria after the coup, and of course, they were welcomed back instantaneously once a democratic government was back in place. So, you know, it's a very good question. Why do people want to be in the Commonwealth? Why are other countries petitioning to join the Commonwealth as we speak? It's not because it confers any huge apparent economic value. Although in the case of Rwanda, They made a decision that they wanted to be part of the English-speaking trading world that surrounded their country in Africa. They wanted not to just be in the Francophone world, so they're now part of La Francophonie and the Commonwealth, and we welcome them in both. Canada's a partner in both. In fact, when we we, uh, put on the table the Charter of the Commonwealth (laughs) last Thursday in the Canadian Senate, uh, as our former page will tell you, you can't table anything in the Canadian Senate unless it's both in English and French. That was the first tabling of the Commonwealth Charter in French anywhere in the world. And we've now shared that with our colleagues in Rwanda and Cameroon, so they can uh, diffuse that document throughout their population in, in one of their official languages. But look, there are aspects of the Commonwealth which, is, which are about less than meets the eye. It is about a sense of affiliation and constructive engagement as opposed to the uh, disposition of any kind of military or security threat. But the mere fact that the organization has grown and more people want to be part of it must imply that the benefits. If um, Malcolm Rifkin, Sir Malcolm Rifkin were here, he would say what he said at meetings which we had together in different parts of the world. He would say, as Lord Howell has said, If you're part of the Commonwealth, that implies that while your country is not perfect, directionally it is about a measure of the rule of law, about democracy, about respect for minorities, and while none of us are perfect in that respect, that sends a message about a good place to invest, a good place to grow, and that has, in this competitive world, clearly some attributes which many of our members believe to be of great value. (laughs) You the Well, yeah. on directly
0: benefiting from uh, the Commonwealth Institution as well um, my question um, is, about, is about the organization um,
1: and it seems to me I don't I, unfortunately I don't know as much about it as I should but it seems that it's a unique opportunity uh, for Canada in the international stage um, as, a, as a body where we're missing um, a, a large number of key players we're missing our large our large neighbour to the south, we're missing a large number of European players, uh, we're missing Japan. Um, so in terms of a, of a body that's creating a normative agenda in the international system, um, it seems like a very unique opportunity for Canada, and like you said, uh, the proportion of the, of the global population that's a part of the Commonwealth, the large share of GDP that's
0: incorporated in the, in the, in the Commonwealth. How important is this body
1: as, as a way of Canada to be able to project and influence the normative agenda of the international system?
0: Um, that was a great talk, thank you. And I'm also a Canadian student, I'm studying here in London. And uh, I'm I'm doing a master's dissertation on economic history and looking at the 1932 Imperial Conference and all that. And one of the one of the findings of that, it was largely a failure. Um, pr- particularly because Britain kind of ex- exerted dominance right. over, its, over its colonies. And so, um, do you think there's sort of a skepticism now with countries in the Commonwealth um, because of past failures? And secondly, if there were to be any sort of preferential trading agreements or
1: economic in the future, do you think Britain would have to make a lot of concessions in order for countries to all buy into this? Okay, thank you. Should I deal with those three? Uh, let me d- deal with the last one first. Um, I mean, the 1932 conference really just fell after the 1931 Statue of Westminster when many of the participants in the conference actually had their first authority on foreign policy for the first time in their lives, Canada included. So the notion that the British would have we- sort of uncoupled themselves from managing affairs for everybody else within that short period of time is probably hopeful, to say the least. Um, I don't want to get into domestic British politics, but you do get a sense now that whereas five or six years ago it was Europe uber alles, and nothing else really mattered, now there seems to be at least a considered debate about whether the United Kingdom needs some other balancing relationships to assist in its broad economic and trade mission. And while I think it's wrong to imbue the Commonwealth with the capacity in any meaningful way to replace Europe, I think that is, is technically and economically uh, way over the top, there is probably a network of activity, a series of investment roles, linkages, and uh, some work that could be done on the technical side to increase the amount of British exports that become part of the Commonwealth world effectively. And uh, certainly if you think about the relationship between India and Pakistan, I'll just say in my country, the two largest group of, uh, as we speak, um, growing new canadians are uh, indo and pakistani canadians if you think about those linkages per se in our country and in other countries and in australia etc you can begin to see how some of this critical mass will become a very positive force if governments have the foresight to encourage as opposed to discourage to embrace rather than discriminate and and to uh, and to facilitate rather than diminish, and I think that will be dependent upon both the competence of our respective sovereign governments and what leadership the Commonwealth can show. And certainly, um, if you think about the cycle, I think it's fair to say that the Blair administration had very little interest in the Commonwealth. They saw it as a kind of hangover from an older imperial view that didn't have much to do with New Labour or New Britain. The present administration, for better or for worse, has said they want to put the C back into FCO. They've been much more engaged in the commonwealth. They've been very supportive of the EPG activities. They were very supportive of the charter. And like Canada, they're giving serious consideration to what the status of their representation in Sri Lanka will be. And no one is talking about boycott. Someone else asked that question uh, in the the back. Yes, sir. Um, Canada has never talked about boycott. Our prime minister has said he didn't think he'd be going based on what he now knew. But we've never talked about boycotting. Colombo, and whether uh, our delegation is headed by a foreign minister or by a high commissioner or by a public servant remains to be determined, and our British colleagues are in the same, the same circumstance as we speak. Um, let me talk about the importance of the Commonwealth to Canada, your question. Look, I can say this with great affection for my American friends, who I love and adore in small groups. Uh, <laughs> Um, except when we're talking about gun control. Uh, Any room, any large room of nations in which the Americans aren't in charge is always an opportunity for Canada. Uh, And it's not because, you know, we agree with our American friends on many issues. We agree with them. Some people would say too much on some issues. We share common grounds. We have the world's largest trading relationship. All that is good. But there is a Canadian sensibility on matters of foreign policy on matters of trade policy, on matters of how one addresses minorities, on the core question of bilingualism and biculturalism and linguistic duality, which is just slightly different from our American friends. And frankly, the Commonwealth is a very resonant network of people who have some of those say, you know, it is, even in Sri Lanka, for all the difficulties, what did Canada do through CETA? Canada contributed to the translation of the LLRC report, Lessons Learned report, from Sinhalese to Tamil, so the other part of the population could read the report and hold their government accountable. Well, that's, you know, Canadians, we know about translation. We know how important it is to some measure of coherence and community spirit. So yes, it is an important network for us, as is the Francophonie, quite frankly, um, because even though these are primarily organizations with a cultural and governance feel to them, The trade and influence benefits for all the participants are very substantial. Um, We've been on the ground helping our friends in Cameroon and in Rwanda with some of the difficult issues that were part of their history because we can operate in two official languages. We have linkages which are constructive, something that our American friends aren't able to do quite as intensely. So it is of great value to us. There's no Canadian I know who thinks we should be pulling out of the Commonwealth. Um, I think the core question for us going forward is the one I asked at the end of my comments. If the Commonwealth is going to stand for something, core principles and values, and do something about them in a constructive uh, and all-encompassing way, then that suggests it's a great place to expend Canadian resources of time and money. If, however, one concludes that that is not what the Commonwealth is about, that the charter is meaningless, the new terms of remit for CMAG Are more fictional than real, then that will force a reappraisal of priorities Um, in Canada in terms of our relationship with the central Commonwealth bodies. It may have an impact on our constructive relationship on a uh, bilateral basis with individual Commonwealth organizations and countries who are trying to work in the right direction where we might be helpful in some way. I think I've, have I left anybody out? No? was there one Was there? yes that was ma'am. A on ma'am oh no no, it, 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 no his question was really about what happens if you don't show up and uh, we're not planning not to show up we may, it may be a less dynamic <laughs> delegation than we've had in the past but it'll be there Well, look, um, we are not encouraging anybody to boycott the meeting in Colombo. But we do believe very strongly as a country, and our foreign minister has said this, that when you've had the events that have transpired in Sri Lanka over the last two years, where you most recently had the impeachment of the chief justice as a result of a decision rendered by her court that the government didn't like. If we did that, Canadians in the room will know. If we impeached our chief justice... Every time the Supreme Court of Canada rendered a decision our government didn't like, we wouldn't have a Chief Justice who lasts for more than an hour and a half uh, because our courts are always ruling against government, which is what the rule of law is about in a constitutional democracy. Um, if, um, uh, if we had less disappearance of journalists, less white vanning of dissidents who are disappeared and never heard from, if we uh, didn't have a decision by the government to go back on its commitment to the northern state in terms of more devolution, to say, actually, that's over now. If those things hadn't happened, we'd be having another discussion. If there had been a scintilla of activity on the issue of accountability for the 40,000 disappeared human beings, many of whom were encouraged to go into safe camps where they were then bombarded by government artillery. These issues at reconciliation are very tough. This is not about good guys and bad guys. You need accountability on both sides. But as we learned from our South African brothers and sisters, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu and others, if you don't address that, if you just leave it to fester, if the people who've lost loved ones get no closure, they don't even know where they are, if we don't even have a list of people who are being held in prison without charge, so families know where their people are, very hard to build constructive progress forward. And our view is this is the sort of thing Commonwealth Ministers Action Group should discuss. I don't know what the result of that discussion would be, but the notion that you wouldn't discuss it simply because they're holding a meeting, i.e. logistics over principle, would strike me as a very bad way to launch the charter and the new CMAG remit going forward. So that's the position that Canada's taking. It's not about boycotting. It's not about anything else other than letting Mag have that discussion. And, you know, CMAG is made up of a lot of countries who would be interested in our position, a lot of countries who would not be interested in our position. That's okay. If everybody thought the same way, nobody would be thinking. But it is fundamentally important that we have the discussion.
0: Yeah, that's a very, robust. answer. Um, we had three men in the last round. I'm going to take three women in this round. You were first. You were next. One other woman? Please. Uh, thank you for your comments. Uh, my question is in regard to whether you think further integration in the Commonwealth would actually support or undermine global or international cooperation in general. There's a lot of uh, literature in trade policy regarding how. Um, smaller groups may actually act as doubling blocks rather than building blocks into further global integration. Mm-hmm. So we put a lot of focus on you know integration in the Commonwealth. Does that actually, the exclusion of other countries, work against international cooperation as a whole? Okay, you're the
1: Yeah, thank you very much for your talk. My question relates to a climate change. Yes. I'd quite like to hear um, what do you think of the
0: role of the Commonwealth as to and the role of climate change. Thank uh-huh.
1: deal with the the issue of integration. Um, Look, um, I was a great proponent of the Canada free trade negotiations. Uh, I stood on a platform in the Bundestag six years ago with uh, Chancellor Merkel talking about the Atlantic Initiative, i.e. EU North American free trade. So as a general principle, I believe that bringing the barriers down to trade is a good thing. And if you look at how India and China to their credit, have literally lifted tens of millions of people out of poverty because they can now ship more of their products and services worldwide. Some of those benefits are apparent, but it's not all happy. Um, There are difficulties that happen for smaller countries that can't compete. The Commonwealth is really the coalition of democracies that has within it the largest single grouping of small countries. Um, I think in excess of, is it 38 rows or 35? Certainly, uh, certainly um, almost uh, 60% of Commonwealth countries are small states, small island states, who have huge problems in terms of being competitive. And part of what our eminent persons group recommended was that the commonwealth have an office of small states which we now have in Geneva to help small states with those negotiations so they don't get left out in the process of protecting their interests. Um, We took the view that the commonwealth should have an active representation for small states that we run with them in terms of the World Bank and the IMF and the challenges they face in terms of debt management. Um, And I think that those are the kind of structural ways we can assist some of those countries to compete more effectively. Uh, The Prime Minister of Kiribati, who was part of our EPG report, we were going on one late night in Malaysia about democracy and rule of law, and he had the most wonderful line. He looked at me, he said, you know, Senator, in my country, if you wake up hungry, there's not a big discussion about democracy and rule of law. And in my country, people often wake up hungry. And until the Commonwealth engages at that level, it's very hard for me to engage a broad discussion on these other secondary and tertiary principles of social organization that don't necessarily fit into the Malthusian hierarchy. So uh, your point is well taken. I don't know that the Commonwealth has figured out how to do it efficiently, but the EPG report made it very clear that we'd better figure it out fast or else a lot of our members are going to be left behind. Little things like the European decision on who can ship bananas has a cataclysmic effect throughout our Caribbean brothers and sisters. And, and we sometimes just look the other way as if it's one of those issues we can't address. And we would have been of the view uh, in the eminent persons group that that is not sufficient or appropriate. Um, with respect to uh, um, uh, why the charter happened when it happened, I think the view was that, in a, and I say this with great affection for our British friends, and, you know, Britain does not have a written constitution, right? A series of conventions and practices and history, historical events which have constituted a framework for a pretty robust democracy and a relatively well-run society. So, understandably, an organization which had its roots in this part of the world would have said, we'll have a declaration in Harare about pluralism, and racial fairness. We'll have another declaration in Singapore about democracy and the role of women. We'll have another declaration in Perth about enduring values. And so the notion that we suggested was we should actually have it all in one document. So everybody can look it up, find it on the web, put it up in schools, people understand it, struck the Secretariat as an odd proposition. They weren't opposed. The idea was put forward by the way by Tum Abdul Badawi former Prime Minister of Malaysia, and he happens to be, amongst many other things, the Chancellor of the Islamic University of Malaysia. They believe in the Quran. They believe in things being written down. So they're clear and precise, and that was an idea which we embraced instantly. A high, ju- a high court justice from uh, Australia, then did a first draft. The rest of us worked away at it, and imagine... Um, we had uh, that high court judge, who is a very strong proponent of gay rights, and we had Asma Jahangir, the president of the Pakistani uh, Supreme Court Bar, a great human rights uh, person, but had to think about how this charter would actually be approved by a Sharia-based government, democratic government in Pakistan. So we had to work those things through in a very commonwealth way to ensure mm-hmm. We came up with a document that actually bridged between the different perspectives and advanced a clear and precise statement of those rights. So I think it was a lack of clarity and a desire not to just mumble our way through, you know, when in trouble mumble, that kind of thing, Uh, actually have some clarity, which we thought would be very helpful. So people know these are the rules, these are the values, and this is what we have to be measured against, all of us, in the way we discharge our membership. On climate change, um, there was a very robust section in the Eminent Persons Group report on climate change. And we actually called for the creation of a task force on climate change to work with those countries that are facing a very substantial existential risk now from climate change. And many of our small island states, Pacific and elsewhere, are actually at the cusp of that. They're not 40 years away from slightly higher seas. They are facing... And you may recall that the Maldives had a cabinet meeting underwater about 10 years ago to make the point that this is the problem we're facing. Um, And various governments have engaged on the file. I'm proud to say that the government of Canada has a global um, climate change adjustment fund with many millions of dollars. And awards have been made to Commonwealth countries to assist them with some of the adjustment infrastructure which may be necessary to address some of those issues. And the view of uh, the EPG, which has been accepted by the heads of government, is that there be a task force put together between countries from the North and the South to develop a more detailed and integrated policy and to begin to gather up some of the resources that are necessary to make it real. We also took the view that, where possible, we should not duplicate efforts with the UN and others, but work with them, broaden their reach, help expand their financial capacity, so they can be more effective. Um, this is not one of those circumstances where the more cooks, the better, to some extent, when there is an, uh, uh, an intellectual leadership position, technical leadership position established by someone like the UN, we are probably best to work with them rather than try to recreate the wheel ourselves. In, let's be clear. All the staff at the Secretariat at Marlborough House number less than the cafeteria staff at the UN in New York just so you have a sense of proportionality. So we do have to be realistic about what we can achieve. And in many cases, the instrument of delivery on climate change would not be the secretariat. It would be a commonwealth Commonwealth broad program investing in some of the small island states so they have the capacity to do what they have to do in terms that are relevant to their climate change risk. And um, I think that would be the bias you'd find amongst most commonwealth countries.
0: Did I miss anybody else? I did. Yes, one, sure. one. You might be the last. Is anybody else have desks Okay, the last. part you have
1: go. Yes, sir.
0: Um, basically, I'm just I'm wondering because in the past, I don't think the Commonwealth has. I'm from Singapore,
1: by the way. I'm oh, great. Accounting. So I don't think the Commonwealth has been like a huge power driver in
0: terms of spheres of influence in like in history in the last 100, 200 years. You know, like you were just saying, um, some people think it's like antiquated. It's uh, you know, reminiscent of imperialism. And I'm um, just wondering what your opinion on the future. Like in five, ten years, will it be? Will it be like? Will it be a powerful sphere of influence, or will it not? Because I mean, the the lead country in the Commonwealth is India, right? Which has like 1.3 billion. No? 1. Yes. 1.3 billion. Yes. So if they're not partaking in in uh, you know all the agreements, all the other linkages going on between the countries, then it sends a signal out to the other countries that you know it's not it's not important to them. So they'll they'll uh, they'll commit to like trade and, and other linkages in terms of other organizations, you know, or other trade
1: agreements. Mm. Well, let me first of all say I had the great privilege of uh, visiting your country and meeting with your finance minister when I was advancing the uh, ideas in the eminent persons group. Our, rep- our approach was to put the principles together circulate them to all the governments, and then send some of our members out to get reaction and response. And I met with your finance minister when I was in your fascinating country. And interestingly enough, we engaged on an issue which, if I may say so, as an accounting person, you might have some affinity for. What is the efficiency of how the Commonwealth operates? Is it operating in a way that actually uses resources properly? Do we have an approach to accrual accounting which actually underlines what the assets are and how they're being deployed. And in fact, my request of Singapore was that when we get to the point of reorganizing and strengthening the secretariat, that we call on our Commonwealth brothers and sisters in Singapore to help do this in a way that's going to be truly efficient and effective. And I must say, they were very responsive. My Minister of Foreign Affairs is meeting with his counterpart in your country today to continue some of those constructive discussions. The Secretary General is from India. He's a former Indian Ambassador to the UN and an Indian High Commissioner to London and a a very distinguished and uh, thoughtful part of the Indian diplomatic establishment. India has invested in a series of activities uh, for the Commonwealth, uh, the creation of a new, more digitally modern uh, porthole to the world, which they have done. They have stepped up the head of the Commonwealth uh, of Learning is a distinguished Indian academic in Vancouver who's come from India to do that job. So, in fact, we see more and more evidence of a leadership position being taken by India in Commonwealth affairs, and quite frankly, we welcome it very much indeed. Um, Yesterday, uh, for those of you who were able to get to the church, there was a young person who spoke about the new Commonwealth Asian Youth Entrepreneur Network. And their first meetings, were in India, and the largest group of people who came to those meetings, just think about this in terms of history, were young Pakistanis. And they worked together on that issue, and people from Singapore were there, and Malaysia, and other really areas of immense economic growth and expansion. So I think there is tremendous...